Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Boris is running amok with the nation's credit card like a drunken uncle at a wedding. Four. Isn't it lucky, Liam, that the UK is so flush at the moment? There are no people here who need a helping hand with their fuel bills. There's no public debt at all. There's no call on our resources. The government has no task to achieve in Britain. It's a different sort of inflation from what we saw in the 70s, but it'll have just as much damage... This Deliveroo government, every day we hear Boris or some luckless minister say, you know, we will deliver on our priorities. Let's get on with the job delivering. What delivery? One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So the Tories lost and lost big co-pilot with the red wall seat of Wakefield reverting to Labour and the Lib Dems romped to victory in Tiverton and Honiton, turning a true blue West Country seat, that weird orangey yellow, <laughs> overturning a massive majority. Had Tory backbenchers held their vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson after that double by-election disaster, it's pretty obvious the Prime Minister would now be heading for the exit with a Tory leadership contest underway. Weeks ago, co-pilot, we aired the theory here on Planet Normal that Johnson loyalists themselves were submitting letters of no confidence to Sir Graham Brady to get that vote of no confidence over with ahead of those by-elections. Now such Machiavellian thinking doesn't seem so fanciful. Not fanciful at all. But the question remains, co-pilot, how long can he cling on? And when Johnson claims from Kigali, Bavaria or wherever he's been hiding that now is the time to deliver, one can only wonder... Deliver what, Prime Minister? What policies in particular? Because we don't know what you believe. <laughs> you know, I thought the best comment of the week, Liam, came from a Telegraph reader wrote to our letters page. You love this. The voters of Tiverton and Honiton thought they might as well vote for actual Liberal Democrats rather than the lame Lib Dem tribute act we currently have in government. <laughs> But this was the theme of your column this week, wasn't it? Deliver what? And I think you really struck a chord because he hasn't got a clue what he wants to do with power. It's massive incoherence, particularly taken on Tuesday when in the morning we had Ben Wallace saying that spending on defence was going to go up, but by the afternoon spending on defence was going to go down. It's literally like, do the hokey-cokey. I was writing this week about, as you said, about Deliveroo government because every day we hear Boris or some luckless minister saying, you know, we will deliver on our priorities. Let's get on with the job delivering. And as you said, you think, what delivery? Now, Liam, if the delivery guy or the Just Eats guy turned up on our doorstep and said, I'm delivering, but he didn't hand over any food. <laughs> An empty pizza box. <laughs> An empty pizza box. <laughs> 
it feels to me, I don't, is this unfair? No plans, no coherent policies. The government seems to lurch from one incoherent or contradictory announcement to the next. And all it seems to be driven by, as far as I can see, is that Boris's need to hang on to office. And I do think that the results of the by-elections did prove that the public is wising up to this self-serving nonsense. We haven't really started the cost of living crisis yet. As you pointed out, Boris is doing a world tour at the moment, running amok with the nation's credit card like a drunken uncle at a wedding. So I think yesterday he gave another 429 million of financial support for Ukraine on top of the previous 1.3 billion he so magnanimously doled out. And I can't help thinking, isn't it lucky, Liam, that the UK is so flush at the moment? There are no people here who need a helping hand with their fuel bills or... There's no public debt at all. There's no call on our resources. (laughs) The government has no task to achieve in Britain whatsoever. (laughs) So I did say, didn't I, last week, Mystic Pearson, that there would be a complete kicking in Tiverton and Honiton. And you were right. A 22,000 majority was overturned by the Lib Dems. They won by more than 24,000 seats. An incredible result there in Mm. Tiverton and Honiton. I think that the thing we keep circling around, this is not so much overwhelming enthusiasm for the other parties. As my emails have been saying for week after week, many of the party faithful just refusing point blank to vote Conservative until the Prime Minister is removed. And it's just a fact, Liam, that if the Conservative Party continues on its present disastrous trajectory, it's on course in 2024 to suffer its biggest electoral defeat since 1997. In fact, I saw some projections which said they'd be down to about 28 seats. So goodness knows who'd be holding those. And we've also seen this week two former Conservative Party leaders, Michael Howard and William Hague, both pretty good guys, actually, both telling the PM that the jig is up. And Lord Howard said, you remember also very notable, I think, was that Oliver Dowden, the party chairman, I think rather a nice guy. He wrote a pretty stinging letter to the Prime Minister after the by-election day saying someone has to take responsibility. The party members are incredibly disappointed. I wonder, who could he have had in mind about taking responsibility in his letter to the Prime Minister co-pilot? Any idea? It was a pretty stinging letter and it was a surprise Oliver Dowden, party chairman, one of the sort of Boris Johnson loyalists, one of the first of his intake to publicly back the prime minister. He was down to do what we call the media round the morning after the night before on the by-election. He was booked to come in to all the TV studios, you know, from six o'clock in the morning. And he was talking to the troops the night before. So what happened in the small hours? Got some dodgy (laughs) spirit from Bulgaria or Czech Republic (laughs) from the back of the cocktail cabinet and drank it and suddenly decided that he needed to write a letter and really increase the Prime Minister's pain at the worst possible moment. Apparently, the Prime Minister was swimming around in the pool at the hotel when he found out that his chairman had resigned. I did half wonder whether the Prime Minister might stay in Rwanda, (laughs) the first Britain to willingly embrace deportation. King of Rwanda! Imagine how much he'd love being king of Rwanda. It would suit him perfectly, wouldn't it? He could have 19 wives. I mean, he could have, like, you know, hundreds of children. It would just be absolutely brilliant. He hates unpopularity, Boris, doesn't he? 
And I think that it suits him very well at the moment to be abroad. I thought at the G7 summit in Bavaria with that very lacklustre bunch of Western leaders, I mean, they looked dreadful, didn't they? They looked like some sort of dodgy works outing. I thought he came across as delusional, Liam, honestly, boostering on with the usual shameless piffle about listening to the voters while paying no attention at all. There was an interesting moment, actually, when Chris Mason, who's the BBC's new political editor, said, but the economic impact for Britain of supporting Ukraine over years of war would be absolutely vast. And Boris replied quite airily, oh, sometimes the price of freedom is worth paying. Now, this from the man who apparently tried to raise £150,000 to build a treehouse with bulletproof glass windows for his children at Chequers. So it's not him who's going to be paying the bill, is it? I think it's very interesting, Alison, at the time of the outbreak of open conflict between Russia and Ukraine and Western sanctions, some of us talked about the really high economic costs, particularly for the UK and Western Europe compared to the US. The US, of course, being a net energy exporter, the US, of course, being a massive grain producer and so on. We weren't thanked for putting forward that message at the time, but increasingly people are pointing to the cost of the Western stance, the cost of sanctions on the West. The fact, whisper it, that the ruble is now stronger against the dollar than it was before sanctions were imposed and the dollar itself has strengthened during those few months. But Liam, how has that happened? Because you said this to me, that the ruble is strong. I'm thinking, how the hell has that happened? The Western powers have imposed all these sanctions. How is Putin managing to kind of make his economy stronger than it was before? It's partly because the Russian government and central bank are intervening heavily in the currency market. That's a given. But, you know, governments and central banks do that all the time at times of national crisis. They don't always talk about it. It's also because Russian oil and gas is still making it to global markets. It's because the Chinese have put their arms around the Russians and helped them to keep the international plumbing system open, where the Americans have tried to block Russia out of the US-led SWIFT banking system. The Chinese have helped the Russians to keep making international payments using their increasingly powerful international banking system. They're building their own infrastructure that doesn't include the West. And because, and there's no easy way to say this, but I'm afraid it's true, there are major countries across the world, particularly in Asia, and I'm thinking India, I'm thinking Indonesia, who don't accept the Western narrative in terms of what's going on between Russia and Ukraine and the West and in terms of where the blame lies. So there is still a lot of investment going into Russia. There is still a lot of business being done on international markets involving the Russians, even if the West is talking big and indeed implementing, in some cases, some pretty powerful sanctions. Look, we wanted to throw the Russians out of the G20, the grouping of advanced and rich emerging markets. And there was obviously TV footage of Britain and Canada and America walking out of G20 meetings and so on. But the major outcome of that is that we didn't do it because we were outvoted by the likes of Indonesia, the likes of India, the likes of China. We didn't hold the sway of power in those meetings. And 
It's partly diplomacy, partly the fact that sanctions aren't biting to the extent that we in Britain wanted them to, and partly because you know the world needs what Russia has. And for all those reasons, as well as direct intervention by the central bank and the government in Russia, the ruble has strengthened when I think that the aim really by freezing Russian central bank's reserves was to collapse the ruble, impose a kind of inflation tax on the Russian population in order to try and push Vladimir Putin to act in the way that we wanted him to. That hasn't worked. And that is just an objective fact. So do you think that the war could drag on? And then what I was foreseeing in my column really is that the British public increasingly suffering from this mounting cost of living crisis, more strikes. Oh, you'll love this, Halligan. The GPs have voted in favour of industrial action over a new GP contract, which forces practices to open on Saturdays. I mean, my God, my God, it reminded me of that great Dorothy Parker line about when they said that President Calvin Coolidge had died. And she said, how can they tell? I mean, I literally think if the GPs go on strike, it'll take quite some time for people to cotton on, won't it, that they're not actually there. You know, you're asking me how long... Boris can hang on. I mean, there's a couple of things looming. So there are elections coming up to the 1922 committee, which obviously recently he survived that vote of confidence, but not particularly well. 40% of his MPs wanted him to go. Now, with the new elections coming up to the 1922 committee, people like Steve Baker are standing. Now, if you had a majority on the 1922 who wanted to change the rules and have another confidence vote quicker than the year that it looked like Boris had bought himself, I think that they could. And then perhaps even more significantly, you've got the Privileges Committee reporting in the autumn on whether the Prime Minister misled Parliament when he said there were no parties in Downing Street. Now, it's been rumoured that Labour veteran Harriet Harman may be chairing that Privileges Committee. I mean, she is a pretty tough egg, Liam. She'll be on his case. And I really don't think he could survive that. And I'm just imagining at the moment what the Conservative Party conference in October would be like under the present circumstances. I think it could be lukewarm, potentially a tad excruciating. What do you think? I think... The Privileges Committee could well really increase the political pressure on the Prime Minister, as we've often said here on Planet Normal. But I just wanted to go back to that strike action you mentioned. And indeed, you asked me Mm. another question too about Russia-Ukraine. I do fear Mm. it could become a sort of frozen conflict. Let's just park that there because we will obviously come back to that issue. In terms of strike action, yeah, the GPs are asking for a 30% pay rise. They Mm. they say it's a pay... (laughs) restoration because they claim they've lost millions of pounds with below inflation pay rises in recent years. Join the club. No, come on, Liam, be fair, buying all that garden furniture and barbecues for all the time that they're working from a very, very expensive sun lounges. Consultants earn on average 120 grand, you know, four times the average wage. So if they got 30%, that just their pay rise would be more than the average wage in this country. But junior doctors, to be fair, they're on much more modest incomes, more like 35 or 40 grand. If you talk to doctors our age, Alison, that have been through the mill and are now in their more sort of cushy, comfortable years, they say, oh, it didn't do me any harm. But it has to be mad putting people 
through such mad hours when they're junior doctors for not much pay so they can eventually make it through to the sunlit uplands of consultancy status. I don't think that's right, Liam, actually. What I've heard is that in the brutal old days, remember those all the sort of carry-on nurse when you had James Robertson Justice playing, you know, what was he called? Spratt, the consultant, the terrifying And consultant. Hattie Jakes playing with Sid James's yes, leg exactly. levitation equipment or whatever it's called. In the bad old days, what I'm told, doctors, they learnt so much. I mean, they just were on call the whole time and they built up this vast bank of knowledge which proved invaluable when they were coming across these cases later on in their careers. And a while ago, I was at this dinner of very senior heart doctors, some of the most senior heart doctors in the country. And they were sort of joking, but not really saying that you shouldn't really be operated on by anyone who had trained after a certain date, because they simply wouldn't have built up that wealth of experience. And I think it was when the European Time Directive came in, so we can blame the EU for this, the junior doctor's hours became much more modest. But there is a question mark, I think, over whether they can build up the sort of the necessary hands-on experience. I mean, I'm, you know, hearing quite disturbing things about young surgeons who simply, certainly during lockdown, haven't built up the necessary expertise. Imagine the public reaction if the GPs go on strike. I think there's a widespread perception that they are not and have not been doing their jobs. We're in a situation where pre-lockdown, 80% of consultations were Mm. face-to-face. It's currently, the last official figures in April, 63% of consultations were face-to-face, which is an improvement to what it was in the immediate post-lockdown months when it was more like 45 or 50, but it's still a lot less. Now, GPs will say to you, and rightly so, that some people want Zoom consultations and so on, but a lot of people don't. And a lot of GPs will say, or they often don't say it publicly, it's the soft signs, isn't it, in medicine? It's about being opposite somebody. It's about what they say and their body language and things that are very hard to pick up. Yeah. It's about touch yeah. and feel uh, and physical examination. We're not medics, but that's just plain common sense. And my concern is that, you know, at least some GPs much prefer the, the Zoom calls to actually seeing people face to face. And I do think there'll be a backlash if GPs are trying to keep a Saturday as a time when there aren't consultations, given that you know so many of the rest of us have to work at weekends. But it's not just the doctors, Alison. The, the postal workers, large post offices are going to be on strike across the country. On Monday, the 11th of July, we've got baggage handlers at Heathrow. The barristers, obviously, which we mentioned last week, across lots and lots of sectors, there is strike action. And this is before, as you rightly say, you know, inflation peaks. There's still a lot more to come, unfortunately. And the Bank of England even would agree with me. Inflation will go higher. And I do think we're going to see uh, quite significant strike action. It's not going to be the 1926 general strike. It's not even going to be the 1970s, given that only a quarter of our employees are unionised compared to a half back in the 70s. But it is going to be serious, particularly across the public sector, where union membership is high and unions are powerful. And we're talking about Boris Johnson, you know, through the summer recess. I think he'll be there throughout the summer recess. Conference will obviously be a flashpoint this coming autumn. But what happens at that conference will partly depend on where the economy is, will partly depend 
on the state of industrial relations. And it doesn't take a genius to work out that there are many unions across the public sector who really don't like him and will use their pay negotiations and their industrial action ballots, not just a way of getting more pay, but a way of shaming the Prime Minister and making life as difficult as he possibly they possibly can for him in order to ferment an atmosphere of, you know, who governs Britain, absolute chaos, in order to try and spook the Conservative Party and sort of Middle England as a whole into dumping this guy. That's why I think we desperately need a reset because I think the huge danger now is that this major coalition, over 65% potentially of voters will be ABB, anyone but Boris. And I do think that's going to be very, very hard to come back from. But it'll be interesting to see, won't it, you know, how that unfolds over the next few months. I still don't think he will go into the next general election as the Conservative leader, because I think if he does, they'll be absolutely eviscerated. And I'd actually agree with that, Alison. We have differed in terms of our interpretation of events over recent weeks, but I would agree with you. I don't think he'll go into the next election, but I think the various players, the various runners and riders, and you know we're in touch with many of them, aren't we, in our travels. People who want to lead the Conservative Party, but haven't yet declared. People who are obviously positioning to be leader at some stage they're not going to want to take up the mantle in my view until much nearer the next general election in say mid 2024 they're going to want Boris to be a human sponge they're going to want Mm. him to absorb the pain of this recession which could be likely they're going to want him to be the fall guy when industrial unrest increases as I think it will across the summer and into the autumn no one wants to stand there and take that they want Boris to take that then you get rid then you bring in a new person a year before a general election giving them time to bed in there is general a bit of goodwill towards new leaders, towards new prime ministers, because British people are basically optimistic and decent. And that's why I think, yes, someone else will lead the Tories into the next election, but not yet. Now, a big trend, I think listeners will probably have noticed this, we thought we had escaped from all the sort of COVID hysteria, didn't we? But even though it's still summer co-pilot, the COVID doom merchants are very much back in business, touting for business indeed, because they've seen a very sad drop off in their take up, <laughs> haven't they? And so we saw The Guardian this week calling for the return of masks and mass testing in response to rising COVID infections. And the broadcaster, Jeremy Vine, poor man, was at home, not feeling very well. And then basically calling for a state of emergency because he had a sore throat. There are lots of alarming stories being put about by these people who clearly would love another lockdown. I mean, the lockdown lovers are quite something. So they're spreading these alarming stories about hospital admissions increasing by 24% in a single week. So, Liam, I decided to go back to George, our ever-reliable and brilliant NHS England source, to ask them, what's going on? Here we go. Deep breath. Deep breath. Can I do it without breathing? (gasps) George has seen source with NHS England with full access to the internal data. We don't first his or her identity. We're very confident of the authenticity of George's statistics, and that's why we report them. But by definition, we can't independently verify these numbers because George gives them to us before they are published, if they're published at all. Easy. No problem. No problem. problem. I've got 7.1 litre lungs. Do you know that? 
That's massive. I know that because when I was a serious oarsman, I had a, a test where they measured the size yes. of my lungs. And I got the same size lungs as Matt Pinson. Your, your lungs are bigger than my head. Well, you are a serious cyclist, <laughs> as we know. So a, a career is one of those underwater... What are those girl swimmers called who do all that lovely um, oh, synchronised oh, swimming? Oh, you mean synchronised swimmers? Halligan and a little floral rubber hat would be a, a sight to behold. No, no, no. With a trendy man bun oh, a man, and a painted yes, smile. would be rather good with a man bun. Anyway, there are 8,000 COVID patients in hospital in NHS England at the moment. It's patients being diagnosed after admission for something else that are increasingly more rapidly than patients being admitted with actual COVID. Fewer than a third of the patients diagnosed with COVID after admission are being treated for COVID. So it seems to be the prevalence of the virus in the community, which is likely being brought into hospital when someone is admitted for something else. And the virus is then spreading within hospitals. Now, 30% of the diagnosed after admission cohort do appear to have caught COVID while in hospital. Now, shall we ask listeners, what is it called when you catch COVID in hospital, co-pilot? Nosocomial. I haven't said that for weeks. I've missed that, George. The nosocomial cohort... Almost forgot. ...could actually be larger (laughs) if the incubation period for COVID has reduced, as is thought to be the case. If we include anyone diagnosed more than three days after admission, that would mean almost half of patients diagnosed after admission might have or did contract COVID in hospital. And George makes the very good point that we have to factor in things like relaxation of the most stringent infection control measures and the return, the very welcome and overdue return of hospital visiting. These things are important for maximising capacity, says George, and for patient well-being, but they do come with an inherent risk. Uh, And George ends up by saying we are at the sort of occupancy levels with COVID that we saw throughout last summer, no pressure on critical care beds, nothing majorly alarming. Cases seem to have plateaued after the last few days, but you can bet your life, co-pilot, that's not going to stop all the mad shrieking harpies on Channel 4 News, you know, telling us we must all lock down for the rest of the year, I'm afraid. But that's the picture, and the picture is not terrible. And we are living with COVID. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! These are tough economic times, co-pilot. So we need to hear from those who know their way around the world of economics and business. One such person's Justin Urquhart-Stewart. Having trained as a barrister, he then took up corporate finance working in both Africa and Singapore, 
He then returned to Britain and helped in the developments towards Big Bang in 1986 in the City of London, founding Broker Services in 1986, which became Barclays Stockbroker, and in the early 2000s he co-founded Seven Investment Management. These days Justin earns a crust as a highly respected economic and business commentator, and he recently co-founded Regionally, a company keen to break down as many of the barriers as possible for smaller companies to raise money. I started by asking Justin Urquhart Stewart to summarise the current state of the British economy. Considering what's happening, I'm virtually quite remarkable actually how good it is. But let's not fool ourselves. We've got some big issues to try and deal with. And the one I think that people aren't really facing up to, and that is actually what's happening in the east of Europe. And people worried about whether that war is going to affect us. Well, we may not think we're at war. But Russia thinks they're at war with us. And I'm afraid that's going to have a much, much bigger impact on us over the next few months. And I don't think we've really taken that into account yet. Of course, the war in Ukraine started in late February. But even before that, there was an economic issue, to say the least. In January this year, inflation was already at a 30-year high. As we came out of lockdown, those ongoing supply chain issues, that huge wall of demand hitting a domestic, a global economy that couldn't respond quickly enough did lead to price rises. And now this conflict with Russia, this economic war has made things much worse. Do you get a sense that it's like the 70s when we were kids with high inflation leading to stagnation, leading to trade union action? Do you hear echoes of the 70s? There are certainly echoes of it, but it is different this time. The last bit you mentioned, that's the key difference. In those days, we had double the number of people in trade unions. The unions were very powerful indeed. I remember tea and sandwiches at number 10. That's how you actually try and got things going or not. And of course, all that's gone now. Although having said that, we do actually have one particular union in terms of the transport union kicking up a fuss at the moment, but nowhere near the strength that they had before. And yes, there are other similarities given their level of inflation. I think what concerned me, and we discussed last year, actually was the inaction from government or from the Bank of England, the apparently independent Bank of England, do me a favour, and not realising what was happening with inflation, and it wasn't going to go away, and it was going to continue to go up. I'm afraid we've got inflation at the moment, which is dependent upon, obviously, those price rises going up. It hasn't as yet embedded itself into pay rises, but it could easily do so. But it's still going to be here for longer than I think some people think. People think, oh, well, after a year, it'll just drop off again. I think they're going to see some other inflationary pressures coming through. And so we're going to have to get used to that over the next few years. It's a different sort of inflation from what we saw in the 70s, but it'll have just as much damage and we're certainly seeing that in terms of the efficiency and the weakness of the economy. And I'm afraid one of the things that we had never really addressed was our low levels of productivity. When we should have been addressing that, I'm afraid we didn't. And that's going to show us up over the next few years. Indeed, productivity, skills, innovation. We'll come to that, Justin. I just wanted to go back to the issue of trade unions. We're obviously seeing rail workers striking. We've got postal workers voting for industrial action, baggage handlers at BA, even bewigged, bequilled barrister classes are getting in on the action. I think I'm right in saying that when we were lads in the mid-70s, 50-odd percent of the British workforce was unionised, particularly the private sector back in those days. It's now about 25 to 26 percent, mostly in the public sector. We're not yet in a wage price spiral, as you say, but to what extent do financial markets fear a wage price spiral? Try and explain what that is 
to people who don't follow economics all the time and indeed people who are lucky enough to be too young to remember the 70s. <laughs> yes, well, they're going to have to start learning quite quickly about it because there are some serious lessons. With its wage price spiral, you may think it's completely separate from, hang on, the price of oil's gone up, the price of commodities has gone up, why is that going to impact on everything else? Well, because people are worse off, the basic issue, basic goods are going up, and unlike the 70s, where you saw inflation there affecting a whole range of different areas, this time you've seen it affecting oil, you've seen it affecting gas, and affect basic commodities, basic foodstuffs. So the people really being impacted on this are at the weakest end of society, pensioners and also those people on the lowest levels of income. So things like pasta and those sort of things have been going up not by 5 or 10%, but by 40, 50, even 100%. And this is making having a really large impact. And so it's very different indeed. And of course, for that entire generation, look at it in astonishment and say, well, what happened here? And I remember back in the 70s seeing my father on a fixed pension scheme, seeing pension being eroded by 25% inflation in a year. And you find yourself a lot poorer after that and no means of getting that back. And so we have to take this very seriously indeed. And you have to make sure that actually you don't get into that wage spiral. Because what happens is if you pay yourself 11%, other people want 11%. And before you know what happens, actually then the whole thing feeds into the loop again and prices start going up. The way they should address it is actually have lower wage rises, but maybe say, look, there's a one-off issue for this year or maybe next year, we'll pay you an extra bonus of X, Y, and Z, but it doesn't feed into the long-term cost of the business or industry. It doesn't feed into long-term inflation. I think that's well put, and I do think there's a danger of wages bidding up prices, which then bid up wages, those inflationary expectations, as economists say, embedding themselves in the supply chain, high inflation becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. And of course, the role of the Bank of England is vital in all of this. You said a throwaway remark earlier, Independent Bank of England, do me a favour. You and I were discussing a lot on my GB News show since last autumn that the Bank of England was getting it wrong on inflation, insisting that inflation's transitory. They're trying to blame war in Ukraine now, which is clearly aggravated the inflation situation. But as I say, inflation hit a 30-year high in January before the war in Ukraine. Why do you think it was that the Bank of England kept insisting in the face of all kinds of evidence from financial markets and futures markets and yield spreads and the kind of things that you and I study? They kept insisting, didn't they, that inflation was transitory. Why did they do that? Well, one of the issues was the messages coming out of the Treasury, which is why I'm so cynical about it being independent. They were looking in the wrong direction. They were looking at what government and Treasury were saying. And Treasury had been notoriously wrong on these things in the past. But uh, no, I'm afraid economic markets normally tell you something what's going wrong. They're not always perfect, but they'll give you a good idea. And in this case, it was actually inflation. There are big inflationary pressures there. Start acting now. Put interest rates up now. And so you're being seen to be taking action, if nothing else. Because what then happened is markets started losing faith in the Bank of England and say, we're not paying attention, you're not doing anything. You then react too late. And so therefore you lose confidence. Lose confidence, that'll affect what happens to your currency, affects the level of investment coming in. And I'm afraid they looked weak. And I'm afraid they still are looking weak. And Andrew Bailey, I'm afraid, hasn't covered himself in glory with his actions now. I'm afraid he has to try and get ahead of it now, but it's going to be very difficult because the damage is already there. But interest rates have to go up. But at the same time, actually make sure there are clear policies as to how you 
manage this wage level, that needs to feed back into government that they can't just sit there and wait for the entire country to grind to a halt. What you've got to be able to do is actually make sure the wage rises are managed, there may have to be exceptional bonuses, and then you also make sure that the economy starts to focus on those areas where there is growth and where there is development. And that's not in car manufacturing and things like that. It's in the technology areas, those areas where we know Britain is actually rather good at, and we've got some great opportunities to grow and grow, but it needs further investment and focus. It is a sort of two-pronged approach, isn't it, to tackle an economic predicament like this. It's partly about government encouraging growth so we can build the size of the cakes. There's more to hand out. It's about governments being fiscally responsible. But it's also about the Bank of England signalling to the markets and everyone else that it's not going to tolerate double-digit inflation. Inflation now 9%, 10%, four or five times the Bank of England's target. And as you say, Justin, last summer and autumn, the Bank of England refused to see that inflation was coming, refused to raise interest rates early. The Treasury ministers don't like interest rate rises. They think they're unpopular. And of course, they are to a degree. And that's the point. The Bank of England is full of technocrats because they don't care about being unpopular. They do what's right for the economy in the long term, not just in terms of the next day's headlines. And so I agree with you. There's a real problem with Bank of England independence. Now, my fear, Justin, is if the Bank of England doesn't prove that it can use its independence to climb on top of inflation, then it's going to lose that independence because politicians are going to say, oh, independent central banking, it doesn't work. It's useless. Let's take it back in house, give it back to the politicians. And then we could return to the bad old days of the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and that would be a real mistake indeed. And you heard the comments from some of the politicians last year with interest rates going up. Interest rates were at emergency rates. They've been at emergency rates since we had the banking crisis. You need to get interest rates up from where they were at that level, which is far too low. If nothing else, you're just going to be cynical. You need to put interest rates up so when the economy slows down, you can cut them again. If they're already at naught, there's not much you can cut. Ammunition in the locker, as we say. Absolutely. So you needed to have that. And the rate rises were pretty small. Yes, it would affect people with significant mortgages and things like that. But overall, in terms of business, in terms of cost of borrowing and things like that, that doesn't make that much difference overall. It was very really much higher levels that uh, really saw a significant impact. So I'm afraid they bottled out on this one. And so now I expect to see and I want to see some rate rises. I know it's going to be painful, but the government's then also got to make sure they're taking action to make sure there is enough confidence for business, confidence, that vital word that runs the economy, to make sure there is more investment money coming into those businesses that need it. And we need to be showing ourselves to be efficient and more productive because what happened in the past few years, we were growing the economy, but ignoring the productivity. I do want to ask you about financial markets, Justin and Sterling. You are very much a sort of markets man. When you appear on my GB News show, you turn up in your Gordon Gecko braces, but you do combine style with substance. You, you've been commentating on financial markets for many, many years and are very, very knowledgeable. And I know our listeners will want to hear from you on those issues. But before we do, let's just touch on productivity. You mentioned it there again. Productivity basically means the efficiency of the economy, doesn't it? It means skills. It means the ability to employ capital to advantage. Productivity in this country is pretty low. There are pockets of real excellence. But on balance, our levels of literacy, our skills levels are low, aren't they? What can we do about that? 
basically we were working on the basis that we could have cheap labour. We had lots and lots of cheap labour coming in and that was fine. So you run the gig economy, well fine, if you want to be a nation of pizza delivery people, that's okay. If you actually want to develop your economy into specialist areas and high-tech areas, that's where you need to have greater focus on it. And you need to have greater incentives, and there are good incentives, but you need to have more to make sure there is investment coming domestically and externally into high-tech areas. We've got some great high-tech centres. Now, you always have those nicknames of Silicon Valley, Silicon Roundabout, Silicon Beach, and things like that. What it means is there are hubs of high-tech businesses. And once they get going and they've got the right sort of infrastructure, i.e. decent internet capability, they breed. And that's about what you want to try and encourage. And we've got those. There are obviously quite a bit in London, but they're not focused just on London. They're all over the place. And it depends actually on that infrastructure. Big tech scene in Cambridge, obviously big tech scene on the South Coast, places like Bournemouth. Teesside has got a growing tech scene, by the way. And we've got that tech. But, you know, you try finding a plumber, for instance. Why is it that the Germans are so good at vocational education and we're so bad? We've got to get over this. Well, we had that big issue, as you know, back when Blair decided that everyone was going to go to university. Well, fine. But actually, what was wrong? We had the tech colleges that were turning out very good vocational jobs, people understanding their good uh, careers in vocational areas. And that's they're bringing up. Instead, actually, letting everyone come out with a rather strange degree from the University of God knows where doesn't do anything at all except give you some letters after your name. It doesn't really help the economy. So I'm afraid we were just dallying around with nice concepts and ideas rather than looking at the base way. What? runs an economy and I always go back to the basic elements of actually trying to get money into those businesses that need it right from the days when we first established the alternative investment market actually up in Glasgow where we started it actually getting investment money into those companies that need it and it's the small growing businesses everyone focuses on the large companies and they're fine but actually we're very good at doing new starts in this country we're very bad at growing them into middle-sized businesses which is why we don't see so many companies floating on the stock market because before they get there Private equity nips in, buys these great businesses and flogs them off to somebody else. And so here are the areas that could be giving our productivity, could be actually showing our growth, but we're losing them just at the moment when we need them. And so we need greater investment into those areas. There's no shortage of money, but encourage the mechanism so the money goes into those companies and allows them to grow at the right speed. So it's going to take some more initiative on this, and it's not just based around London, it's taking the whole country, and it's not just private equity. You need to be able to have a mechanism to have the money going into those companies. It's a cliche, but it's true. We're brilliant inventors in this country. We're bad innovators. So let's talk about financial markets explicitly. You set up regionally. It's a consultancy, a campaign group, basically, to get more regional stock markets back because we used to have lots of regional stock markets. You're fascinated and very expert in how companies grow, the inability of companies in this country to get bank finance at the key moment, to get proper investment at the key moment, to go from being small or medium-sized company to being a big company. Many of our listeners will have seen financial markets, you know, on a tear for years and years and years going up and up and up and up, pumped up by printed money. We've seen markets take a bit of a hammering so far this year, particularly in the States. Are we lining ourselves up, Justin Urquhart Stewart, for what they call in the city a major correction? 
I think we're going to see several corrections, very significant ones. Does that mean we all panic and run to the hills? Well, to ask yourself the question, do you think actually the global economy is going to be doomed and we're going to end up being run by Russia in a few years' time? Well, let's work on the assumption that we're not doomed. If you do think we're doomed, buy a case of whiskey and go and sit in a cave in Wales. If you don't think we're doomed, you're investing for the longer term. Yes, there are going to be some dramatic changes and jumps along the way. But remember, good investing is actually longer term investing and your returns actually come from something which is incredibly dull, known as compounding of investment, compounding dividends over time. That is far more important than trying to time the market. One of those old nauseating city phrases, but nonetheless true. It's time in the market, not timing the market. Everyone will tell you, as well, I told you, see, it was going to drop there. Did you? Did you tell us that beforehand? If so, when and where? And occasionally you can see things getting overvalued. The tech market was getting overvalued last year. That was, I think, probably could be seen. Well, the crypto story was absolutely barking mad. And it didn't take too much to actually work that one out. But other areas are more difficult to try and read the entire time. The American economy is the largest economy in the world. It's going to remain that for some time to come. It's still going to be seeing some growth in there. The measurement of an economy is based on the consumer. An American consumer accounts for over 70% of the American economy. So the confidence of Mr. and Mrs. Joe Schmo living in Little Rock, Arkansas, shopping at Walmart... If they're happy, the American economy is all right. If they're unhappy, then we have a problem. And it transmits through the economy very quickly indeed. Yeah, so at the moment, what you've got is actually people looking confident, but they're nervous about what happens next. And it's not surprising. And so to that extent, you know, if you are nervous, build up some cash reserves because there will be some opportunities when you do see some big falls coming in where you'll be able to go in and buy some bargains. So keep the cash, sit on it and be ready, but invest in good quality for the longer term. Final question, Justin. Many people will be thinking about exchange rates, not least as they head for foreign holidays, if they're lucky enough. Do you worry about the value of the pound? Of course, if the pound falls sharply, we import more inflation because the price of those imports go up. The pound is coming to centre stage of policy. Some people say it could fall below $1.20 for the first time sustainably since the mid-80s. Some people are even talking about parity with the dollar at some stage. Well, I mean, the dollar's moved over the past few years from the Brexit vote from, what, over 150 down to 120, and there we are closer to 120 now, and it might well fall below that. The problem is that the pound is not a major currency anymore. It's still large, of course it is, but compared to euro, compared to yen and dollar, it's relatively small. So we get bounced around. So what you're seeing is a lot of dollar strength and euro strength in comparison to the pound, because, frankly, it's as a reserve currency, it's not that important. However, having said that, the pound also will reflect actually what people think of us. And at the moment, they think of us, they think actually as a result of what's happened with Brexit, have you made a bit of a pig's ear of all of this? And your government's not exactly covering itself in glory. But pound is exactly not advertising Britain as being a great position at the moment. So I think I would be very surprised if I don't see further weakness in the pound coming in over the next few months, unless we're going to see some significant change in how the economy is going to operate. And I can see further weakness next year. So be prepared, I'm afraid, for some difficult times next year, a weaker sterling. But if we see some positive moves in terms of investment, then I can see it take about two years' time, things will start picking up again. I suspect that's what the Prime Minister is desperately hoping for, but his job is another issue. Thanks a lot, Justin Urquhart-Stewart, for appearing on Planet Normal. Gosh, what an interesting and entertaining guy, Liam. I haven't heard him before. I I'd particularly like buy a case of whiskey and go and sit in a cave in Wales. I mean, that's my dream, except not whiskey, but Bailey's. But um, 
Very entertaining. I should just say to listeners, we've had lots of praise in for you this week. People calling you a clever lad. Steady. Where's this going? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say I know times are hard, but really. No, people saying, why isn't Liam the governor of the Bank of England? Certainly couldn't do a worse job than... Andrew Bailey's Irish Cream, could you really? I hope listeners also um, will have read your fantastic column in the Sunday Telegraph. You're always so on top of these things that other people don't spot. We will include that in the show notes. You were talking about this new Eurozone crisis, risks to financial stability. And what I was particularly interested in as a Brexiteer was that it has been, hasn't it, an article of faith that the UK must be faring worse than other countries, that we are underperforming compared to the EU because we were stupid enough to leave the common European community. But you say that the reality is rather different. So I wrote this column, Alison, because last week did mark six years on from the June 23rd Brexit referendum in 2016. And what I was basically trying to say is it's far too early to understand what Brexit actually means for our economy compared to have we stayed in, even though the usual suspects are out there. Every single bad thing that happens to the UK economy is because of Brexit. Brexit, And every good thing that happens is despite Brexit. But even now, even though we spent three years since 2016 arguing over whether or not we were going to do Brexit, or at least disgracefully our parliament did, and then we've had COVID lockdown and now war in Ukraine and so on, even now it's clear if you add up all the growth that we've had in the UK since 2016. The UK doesn't only compare well, it's it's among the leading countries in Europe, by the way. When it comes to inflation, we're the middle of the pack in Europe. The pound has been you know, largely steady against the euro since 2016. Both, of course, have depreciated both the pound and the euro against the dollar. And the other thing I wanted to say is that it gets almost no coverage in this country, particularly by our broadcast media. But if you know anything at all about global financial markets, one of the biggest looming issues on global financial markets today, again, is the fact that the Eurozone is an extremely fragile construct that's being held together by the European Central Bank's massive gunge gun of printed money, hosing down Uh, sovereign bond markets across Europe because massive indebtedness in Italy, massive indebtedness in France, by the way, isn't sitting well with more well-managed, more prudent states in Germany and the Scandinavian countries. The spread on bond yields between the so-called Club Med countries in the southern Eurozone who can't have a, a lower currency to help themselves grow and, and escape the economic doldrums. And the northern countries who you know benefit from an exchange rate that's artificially lower because they are in the euro, not least the Germans with their massive trade surplus. Increasingly, there's a split between them because eurozone inflation is now up at 8 9%. The Germans really don't like that. They don't want endless central bank money printing. Europe's central bank interest rates in the eurozone are still negative you know, in nominal terms. And there's very little sign they're going to rise significantly anytime soon to tackle that inflation. There's little sign that the European Central Bank 
is going to stop massive money printing. So the Germans don't like it. The Dutch, the Scandinavians don't like it. There is a concern we could have a rerun of the 2011-2012 Eurozone crisis, which almost, Alison, spread serious financial turmoil around the world. And it's just on a loop repeatedly from these lunatics who want to try and take us back into the Eurozone, who want even Britain to join the single currency at this late stage. There's no understanding of the fatal fragility of the Eurozone, the fact that it's a half-completed currency union and fiscal union, and it will always be half-completed unless you make the whole of the Eurozone one country with one government, with one state balance sheet. And there is no appetite for that whatsoever outside of certain postcodes in Brussels. That is the problem. And the rejoiner movement, those who want to take us back into the European Union have nothing at all to say about this serious problem at the heart of the European project. Now on to our listener emails, some particularly fascinating and entertaining ones this week, co-pilot. This is from Bob. Um, Bob tells us of the 8am scramble as he tries to get a GP's appointment Mm. over the telephone. (laughs) Yes. We're under starter's orders, then on the stroke of eight, I phone the doctor's <laughs> surgery and pray I'm not too late. I navigate their menu, but find the lines engaged. I try again so many times, I start to feel enraged. Eventually connected, I'm stuck inside a queue. Do those in front have special phones? How come they all got through? <laughs> Music without mercy! The precious minutes fly. I'm on the point of hanging up. When comes the first reply? This call will be recorded, so don't be rude to us. I just want an appointment. I won't cause any fuss. There's no more slots for doctors, just one clinician's space. I take what I am given, at least it's face to face. Resources are not limitless, of that I am aware. But this manic morning lottery just drives me to despair. Thanks again for creating Planet Normal, says Bob. You provide one of the few services in this country we can all rely on. (laughs) Fantastic. We've got another poem from Richard. Just to cheer you both up even more, Richard says. This is reflecting on our present leader. Deaf as a post, daft as a brush. Promised the world is a busted flush. Take back control, don't be so droll. Migrants a go-go, Rwanda a no-no. Border controls lack, so well, raise another tax. Told us to lock down through the best parties in town. Married a nutter, couldn't govern for butter. We all had a hope, but elected a dope. Brexit not done, (laughs) lost Tiverton. Thinks he's a hero, we get net zero. Bills through the roof. I think he's a spoof. Big on Ukraine. Home support on the wane. The UK's on the floor. Please show Boris the door. Well done, Richard. (laughs) Here's one. This is from John. Liam, as much as I love Alison and your contributions to Planet Normal, I have to take you to task over your sarcastic comments in last week's programme regarding what you described as champagne socialist barristers going on strike with Alison giggling in the background it's criminal barristers currently on strike they certainly can't be called champagne socialists as some of them when they start receive less than the minimum wage the average salary in their first three years is twelve thousand two hundred pounds and this doesn't include training costs and chambers rent 
The overall average salary for a criminal barrister is £47,000, somewhat less than train drivers. But the rest of the show is great, regards John. Well, John, we'll have to agree to differ. I've read out your email because we want lots of different views here on Planet Normal. I do think it's wrong that barristers are striking and many professions, particularly when they earn a lot of money in later life, start out earning not very much money. Try being a local newspaper journalist, for instance, or one of the many unpaid interns across the British media who are trying to claw their way in. But I certainly take your point and I'm happy to read out the email will see what happens in terms of public opinion as strike action escalates across the country, which I'm afraid I think it will. English Apples says, if I hear that we're getting on with the job of delivering again whilst they aren't delivering, I will scream and scream until I'm sick. Seriously, if the delivery man stood on the doorstep interminably saying I'm delivering whilst not handing over my nosh, I'd have decked him long ago. And (laughs) Jane says, I wrote a long email to my Conservative MP at the weekend advising that I will not be voting at all again until they get a proper Conservative Brexit supporting leader who can put together a viable plan to start getting us out of the mess Johnson has created. I also suggested that he reads the comments in the Daily Telegraph to get an idea of just how angry Conservative voters are. Yes, Jane. Well, I read those comments. They're not very happy, Liam. They're certainly not co-pilot. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week. It's my turn. And Alison, I think it's got to be Bob. Uh, We had the war of the poems. (laughs) I think Bob has edged it with his 8am scramble (laughs) we do love poems don't we more poems to planet normal send them in please do halligan is threatening to award a star prize of a planet normal teapot so the stakes have got even higher than the (laughs) highly sought after mugs so that is it from planet normal for another week if you enjoy planet normal and you jolly well should given the effort we put into this do leave us a rating and a review please on apple Podcasts or spotify it does help others to find us and it cheers the co-pilot up no end to read how marvellous he is and keep those emails coming the lifeblood of planet normal the rocket fuel that fills our engines as we blast off each week and as we speed away from our beloved planet normal the madness of planet earth comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bouchard Elliot Lampett our editor Zoe Hitch stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him (laughs) 